0: Pretty smart ladies. Because <laughs> people have opinions.
1: I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. Well, so, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right?
0: Everybody, get down. Get down on the ground. Get on your knees, because we need to be small. We're supposed to
1: exercise and eat healthy food and drink water. Leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every
0: night. Um, Everyone, Michelle used her mom voice. <laughs> I mean, and I, I don't want to compare my kid to dogs. It might be squirrel murderers, but we still like ice cream. <laughs> when will my friend die? When will my friend die? Mm, this one's mm. a challenge. My, both of my eyes are twitching hello everyone and welcome to angreement the podcast where i katherine and you michelle get three things we get a weird thing a pop culture thing and a researchy academic thing and we try to fit them all together give you a nice little fortune cookie to take with you into the next two weeks you're up first this week. What is your weird thing? I am. Okay. So this weird thing is a weird thing that I went back and forth on. I feel like I always say that, but I just, I want to talk to you about it. Michelle, I want to talk to you. I'm here. I'm here to, I'm here to listen. Okay, You read on it. You are a huge fan of games. I am. You and are a pandemic huge.
1: pandemic has tipped me from like, oh, that's the person who likes board games to like, Oh, that's a that's a person who likes board that's games.
0: That's a board game person. That is a board
1: game person.
0: Person who likes and, board games. And I'm just going to embrace it. Person. I'm just going to roll with this new identity. That's me. Yes. Yeah, we kind of flew by last episode the fact that you bought something called Meeples and if people don't know that are that's like custom board game pieces. If you don't like the pieces your board game comes with, you can buy more specific board game pieces and they're called meatballs.
1: So in my house, I'm, I'm Hamsar, the, um, you know, misspelled Homestar Runner character. And that's
0: that's it, it how I'm into it brings me great you joy. You also are a huge fan of board game arena. I am
1: though. I oh, wait, is your weird thing? Maybe the, the board game arena
0: controversy. No, I know nope. nothing okay. about it. All right. Oh, I'm excited. Okay. <laughs> um, so Board Game Arena, I don't know what the controversy is. Hopefully I'll learn. If you don't know, Board Game Arena is a website. Michelle introduced me to it very early on at the start of the pandemic so that we could play games together from afar and connect that way. And we still have game nights. Um, and so Board Game Arena to me is, Fun for playing games with my friends. It's also a way to like for very complicated games that I could not figure out on a board game myself, or I don't want to add up these points, or
1: like something that just has so many little pieces, and the game just does it all for you, and you don't have to get out nine thousand little cups. And yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So I, for my birthday, which was I mentioned uh, last episode, I got a game, and I just want to preface this by saying. It was, it was a game I did enjoy. And I automatically thought, oh, I should tell Michelle about this and it's probably on Board Game Arena. And then the more I played this game, the more unsettled I got. And actually, <laughs> finally, it took me longer than I like to admit about why I actually was like, no, I don't think I can ask Michelle to play this game with me. And I'm just going to start it like this. Michelle, I'm going to tell you, about a fun game So that I am curi- playing. Okay. Ready? This Going game. Going on this ride. One of the cool things about this game is that each player gets their own personal board. And that's really cool. Like you're in charge of your board. Those are my
1: favorite games. It's like group solitaire because I'm a, I'm a type, already... type A control freak. So you got me already. I'm, exactly.
0: I'm you want board. to be in charge of your space. Now, everyone gets on board. It's very cool. We agree we like that in the game. The board is a top-down image of a ship. Okay. Kind of the storage area of a ship. And the game, how you play it, how you win, is that you go to an island, and you have to, in cages, capture the inhabitants of this island in cages and cram as many of them as efficiently into the space of this boat as you can. Human inhabitants? You also along the way are taking valuable resources such as gems from this island, put them on the boat too. And so ultimately you wanna fit as many of the inhabitants of the island as you can, which you catch in cages, as compactly as you can, Tetris-like, into this ship.
1: So this is a slavery game.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. This is not a slavery game. And I racked my mind. I actually racked the internet trying to find anyone saying that it is clearly a game about slavery. It's this game called The Isle of Cats. Oh, people have been talking about The Isle of Cats. It had all, like, it's, yeah, people
1: love it. They talk about it all the time in the groups I'm in. Did you ever hear the word slavery? No, not once. I
0: mean, it has been very, very recommended. Yeah. Again, I will say at the end of the day, it's a pretty fun game, but I can't play it. The minute I saw that, and it's like, American school systems teach you very little about slavery. This is a problem, right? We know this. But like the one thing you do get in your textbook is, is that, that horrendous I, image of the Yeah, the horrific yeah. image of the slave ship, top down, showing how compact they would fit slaves in slave ships. And so I can't unsee this as we and it's cats. It's called Isle of Cats. I said inhabitants to be misleading. Um, but these are living <laughs> creatures on an island. You roll up to the island and you have to catch as many of these cats in cages and force them into your boat. You you get more points the more cats you fit on your boat. And it's a ship. And it just, it's very hard to play the game and not think of yourself as a cat slaver, enslaving cats. There would be so many ways that you would build this game from the ground up to avoid this.
1: Did we talk about that image on, on an early episode of this show? I I know that I've talked, cause like that image, the, the image that you're talking about that we've all seen in the textbooks, that's like the top down image of the ship. And with all of the, I mean, like bodies in different directions so that they can have the maximum amount of fit. Um, it was, it was specifically designed to be a piece of, it was designed to be like a piece of anti-slavery, Propaganda is the wrong word because it was accurate, but like you know, like let me show you how right, terrible these conditions are. Yeah, but it, it was made it by abolitionists. Of, it kind of sure. backfired because once they ended the transatlantic slave trade, they were like, "See, it's not so bad anymore." See, like when the when we're just dealing with slave, like we're not we're not shipping them across the ocean anymore. We're just enslaving people, you know, that were born here, and so we're and so like they the imagery became. They were using it to show how horrid it was, but then it became yeah, like an argument for like,
0: it's better.
1: Yeah, and and um, I I can't remember mm. what I was I was reading some research into that and how how upsetting it was to the people who had worked to create that um messaging and show like look at how terrible this is. And like, oh, we'll see, we're not being that terrible anymore. And like, no, this is still just like you have to stop enslaving people, not just stop shipping them across the ocean, right? Um. But that image has a really interesting kind of history and rhetorical positioning. And so, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I, I can't imagine that if I was playing a game and just saw th- that same kind of imagery
0: that it wouldn't tap into that. And yeah, yeah. it it it's so, because like you said, it, in the bodies are in different directions. And this is like the, the cats, you have to do like Tetris and say, how will my cat best fit so that I can fit? the most cats on this ship. And it just, there are games. I like, I um, teach like video games and gaming in technology and art classes a lot. And there are really interesting games out there. They're usually like art games that do deal with topics of slavery that do deal with like issues of immigration or, um, issues of gender and sexuality. Yeah. I mean, In like ways to productively teach you about them as,
1: as a homeschooling parent, there's a whole group of like game schoolers where you're like, you can, you can find a game on almost any topic. So you could like teach those hard history topics, but I mean, you're not usually is not making
0: not this. This is not that they're not aware of it. I, I I am convinced the people who made this game had no idea what they were doing or what they were clearly referencing. This game goes to great lengths to be inclusive in case you're colorblind because all the cats are different colors. You get more points if you keep like the same color of cats together in large groups. And they're like, well, they have like a special card. Use this card if you're colorblind and all the cats have different stripes on their tails in case you can't tell what color they are. And it's just like they were thinking They wanted to be inclusive. They wanted to be socially aware in some way. But clearly this is a game that maybe it was like people in tech or something made it who were colorblind, but there was not diversity in the room. And you can just tell. It's one of those things where there wasn't anyone in the room. To be like, hey, wait a minute. That said, hey.
1: This imagery is not what we want with this family fun game.
0: And so I don't know. Maybe I'm overreading, but and it's interesting that nobody's bringing it up online. Because anywhere I I Google search and Google search, I'm opening the box. If you can hear that, I want to show this to Michelle now. I Google searched my brains out, and everyone just loves it. It's a great game, but it's like there it is. Oh no! Okay, good. I'm not overreading. Yeah, no, it looks just like that image, just like it. More bag noises here, everyone. And you just have to fit. Some of the cats have ropes around their neck. You have to fit the cats in as much as you can. Mm. Tetris-like. Oh, does it fit? How do we fit?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Onto the board. Yeah, no, it looks a lot like that image. And I mean, that's not an obscure image. Like, it's...
0: (sighs) Okay, that's all. All right. My weird thing is to sum up that I got a very nice present for my birthday. I played it, slowly realized, was drawing on inadvertently horrific images of slavery. That, Michelle reminded me, were actually abolitionist um, images to convince people against slavery. That were used against them, but this is cats.
1: Well, I'm gonna have to sit with that for a while. That's a i'm yeah, I'm interested to why people are not drawing that connection because it seems pretty obvious.
0: I'm glad you said that because I thought I was overreading and then I showed you the board piece and you went no. All right, sorry. Yeah, gonna start <laughs> it
1: off on that. It's a heavy note. A heavy start. Um. Mine is also a little well, it's literally heavy, but Ooh. it's also like it's all right. I'll just I'll just go into it. All right. So black rhinos are critically endangered. Oh, don't look sad. It's okay. It's gonna be okay. This is heavy. <laughs> literally hypocritically. So um black rhinos are critically endangered. Their population dropped 98% between 1960 and 1995. Um, and this is true of a lot of speed. Like we just saw huge drops in a lot of populations of animals within that time period because we are terrible and just took over a lot of habitats and have really um, didn't pay much attention to how industrialization and everything that we wanted was impacting the world around us. But starting in 1995, they really wanted to do a lot of conservation effort and trying to bring back. And so the population was down to 2,500 in 1995. It's now up to 5,600 today, which is not fantastic, but it's certainly better than what looked like almost certain doom for the black rhino. So there's a lot of work to, you know, bring back the black rhino and to k- keep their population going. Um, and that work sometimes involves moving black rhinos from one location to another, which is not as easy as one might think because
0: rhinos are very Large and they don't. I'm thinking about it because I didn't immediately think about how hard or easy I would think that is. I mean, I would like if you had
1: just told me, oh yeah, we had to move this rhino, I'd be like, oh, it's like a horse in a horse trailer, right? Like that would be the image yeah. that I would have in my mind. Um, That's exactly
0: what I thought. Or maybe like a cattle drive.
1: Yeah, yeah, but like you know, um they that doesn't work very well, okay. especially since a lot of the places that they have to. Traverse. Um, This is largely in Namibia is where this is happening. Um, So there's a lot of extreme landscapes like um, sand dunes or salt flats, places that are hard to take a truck over. Um, Some of them are just inaccessible by vehicle. And It can be an hours long ride, which is not great for the rhino to be kind of confined in that space, bumpy roads. And so even when they can access them. So they found a method of carrying the rhino, which is sedating it and dangling it upside down by its feet with a helicopter. Okay. So in doing this... um, they i mean you know they were cuz cons- obviously these are people who care about the rhinos right these are people who care about the rhinos well-being care about the yeah. rhinos like in a collective sense but also on an individual level they're they're dedicating their life to helping these animals um persevere and i just have to read this quote from the from the article i read We've been picking animals up by their feet for 20 years now, says Pete Merkel, a wildlife veterinarian who is considered the world's <laughs> foremost expert in black rhinos.
0: And so they talk. <laughs> I have to give Catherine a moment to compose. I'm herself. Sorry. Just, I, I, that, I know you preface it. These are experts. They're These are dedicated. Experts who are dedicated they have, to helping the rhinos. They've like doubled the numbers of rhinos in the world. Thank you. <laughs> been dangling animals for decades (laughs) so um they
1: blindfold them and give them earplugs to help to help make the traumatic thing that is about to happen to them a little easier to take morkel says we started small with zebra and antelope and then moved on to the big stuff there was a lot of trial and error and luckily we haven't had much error what does error look like? Oh, no. Right. I, the article does not
0: go into I detail. I think they have to the go error. watch Operation Dumbo Drop for research about this.
1: <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but the thing I found weird was, so some people were suspect about whether this was actually an okay thing to do to the rhinos, right? Like, oh, are you hurting them? Is this causing them, causing them trauma? Um, and they did see drops in. So there is there is a peer-reviewed study. Um, let me, I'll read the full title, which I will probably mispronounce some words in.
0: We do uh, peer-reviewed around here.
1: This, this is, came out this year in 2021, January 18th, 2021, in the Journal of Wildlife Diseases. The pulmonary and metabolic effects of suspension by the feet compared with lateral recumbency in immobilized black rhinoceroses captured by aerial darting. Radcliffe et al., There's a very, there's several people on this study. As a humanities person, I always am, you know, the hard sciences when you look at theirs, it's like 19 people on there. And I'm like, oh, we just do everything by ourselves. Um, But anyway, um, (laughs) we have a very lonely existence. Uh, So they were concerned because in white rhinoceroses, they had found that, I'm trying to find the, the exact, because white rhinoceroses immobilized with, etorphine, etorphine, E-T-O-R-P-H-I-N-E, whatever they're using to tranquilize them. So white rhinoceroses, when they are tranquilized, are hypermetabolic with a high rate of carbon dioxide production. And they expected to see the same thing in black rhinoceroses, but they did not. The black rhinoceroses did not show that effect. And so in this study that they did to check and see if this was an okay thing to do to black rhinoceroses, if you're going to move them around, Um, they actually found out that it didn't have a physiological effect to harm them. Um, So they basically compared them to a control group where they would sedate both animals and one they would hang from their feet and the other they would just put on their side and then check to see how it affected their- Can I
0: assume that in this test study, they're not moving them, so they have a facility where they- just hang rhinos cool. by their feet purely for experimentation purposes, yeah. And so, That's fascinating. There's just a rhino hanging by their feet room somewhere. And they actually
1: found out
0: that in the animals they tested, which
1: was only 12, but I mean, again, there's only 5,600 of them in the world, so they probably shouldn't be testing on too many of them, right? Yeah, um. That oxygen levels were actually higher for the rhinos who were suspended from their feet than the ones who were laying down. And this is my favorite quote from the whole article. (laughs) Are you ready? Okay. Unlike a smaller, softer mammal, a rhino's rigid body can maintain integrity even upside down.
0: (laughs) Oh, no oh no what soft mammal did they ruin when they hung it upside down and that is my what? weird thing <laughs> oh this rat didn't do so good you guys this squishy squishy bunny was a godder
1: so oh i don't recommend transporting i don't recommend trial and error of dangling things for their feet to transport them but there are right. experts out there it's how I'm going to live my life now.
0: Can you be transported via me carrying you by your feet? I think I'm probably a soft mammal. You're soft. I think we're both <laughs> soft mammals. Um, I think we should have turned this podcast exclusively into reading humorous quotes from peer-reviewed studies and JSTOR articles.
1: Like your, what was the cow? <laughs> the,
0: the, the snow cow, which the cannot produce cow. parts. Oh, it's my favorite. Oh, I love that. <laughs> because of their rigid bodies I, uh, we can hang them by their suspect feet. we might not keep our <laughs> growing listening audience <laughs> but it would be real entertaining for me so oh it'd be the best oh my research gonna oh man no that is sufficiently weird and speaking of weird we now have our very first
1: Live on the show with us today, grab bag. Grab bag, grab bag, grab bag, grab bag, grab bag, grab
0: bag, grab bag, grab bag, grab bag. Let me say live. We mean it's live with us. We have the grab baggy, <laughs> grab bagger, grab bag-ish. um, on this Zoom call with us. It is Robert.
2: Yes, good evening. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Catherine. It's great Hello. to be here. I love your podcast.
0: We do not
1: know what the weird thing is. Totally don't. surprised.
0: In fact, we received a very cryptic email at agreementpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can Where send you in your send grab bags. Your grab bags. Or you can do what Robert has done and make a request to come on the podcast live and just record your grad bag like this and get our reactions. We'll make it happen. We love it. It's a great idea.
2: So hello. Hello. Well, uh, this is my weird thing. Uh, I like to drive out in the hinterlands. I was in absolutely nowhere, Kansas, and there is a roadside monument. I use road uh, just figuratively because it's just a red clay trail. And in 1958, the Boy Scouts built a monument to the man who shot the man who shot Abraham Lincoln.
0: <laughs> so not, not to John Wilkes Booth.
2: It's not John Wilkes Booth, no. And it's actually the pit where the man who shot the man who shot Abraham Lincoln lived, out in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. He,
1: he lived in a pit?
2: In a pit. Well it was a dugout a home that he had homesteaded. Uh but the weird thing is how he well, we got not there. the weird thing. There's that's a weird The weird, the weird thing is how to he the got, there, the how got there and then what happened to him afterwards. This man's life was like a bullet being shot through a tornado. <laughs> and it started, he came to America and he became a journeyman hatter. And he was literally as mad as a hatter. And, you know, back in the old days, they used uh, beaver pelts, for hats, and uh, they used mercury. And the mercury vapor would affect the mental health of the people. Well, um, yes, he was mad as it had. Um, he also had tragedy in his life. His wife died in childbirth, and the child died. And so he fell into a drunken stupor for a number of years, moved to Boston. But then he heard a street preacher, and he found religion. And so he became a street, got sober, he became a street preacher, and uh, he was preaching um, near a shady area of town, and two prostitutes tried to solicit him. And so he remarked that his body reacted in a lustful way. So he went home, did some Bible study, read Matthew's admonition to make eunuchs of yourself for the kingdom of heaven's sake.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Looked around, a pair of scissors, and castrated himself right there. <laughs> no. and, then he, and then he finished his supper, went to Bible study, and only then did he go to the hospital. Wow, yes.
1: that's dedication. And also, like, some impressive home surgery skills, it sounds like.
2: Uh, yes.
0: survived. <laughs> survived. He survived. He ate dinner.
2: Yes, don't when linger on the it. imagery too long.
0: <laughs> went to Bible study and, and did have to go to hospital.
2: Yes. And then he, re, he eventually recovered. Um, he continued his uh, proselytization, his uh, street ministry. He went to New York and uh, where he hung out with other founding members of the Young Men's Christian Association. Uh, street, um,
0: so that, that, that experience only made him more dedicated.
2: Yes. He actually, he was like uh, this is, is a he, good thing. Yeah, he had cut his hair. He tried to look like Jesus. And so he was very fervent to the point where other street ministers said, you know, you're doing really well. You should go to that other corner on the other side of the street. Um, So he saw, this was around the time of the Civil War, and he saw a bunch of Union uh, soldiers marching by. So he joined uh, the 12th Regiment of the New York Militia. But he was a really weird guy. So he would chastise his superior officers whenever they used foul language to the point where they put him in the guardhouse and said, you can't come out to apologize. And he said, no, you offended God, you apologize first. So he was court-martialed and sentenced to be executed. Yes, but (laughs) they relented and they uh, discharged him. But then he re-upped and came back and he, he was sent. His unit was sent to to Virginia to chase a guy named John Mosby, an irregular Confederate colonel who was a really weird bird unto himself. I mean, I'll I'll leave that to you for your next research.
0: Okay, because I'm going to say in comparison, the bar is set very high for weird And and I would also like to say that knowing that somehow he's going to end up living in a pit
1: as as a a peak or valley in this story is is giving me some...
2: Yeah, we haven't gotten gotten to the weird part yet. We haven't gotten to the weird part
0: yet. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs)
2: <laughs> so, so and if you research John Mosby you know what I'm talking about so okay Mosby actually turns the tables um, and surrounds Corbett's unit and Corbett by the way renames himself Boston that's the town where he got religion so they surround his unit his unit surrenders except for him and he just stands there against the entire confederate cavalry empties his revolvers Tries to load his rifle, shoots all his ammunition, and just stands there. And Mosby, who's a crazy guy himself, says, Whoa, that's impressive. Guys, don't shoot him. We'll just capture him. So they captured him and sent him to Andersonville, which is the infamous Confederate prisoner war camp. And Corbett describes the dead bodies piling up with a foot of maggots around them. It was, it was really god awful. Uh, People would volunteer to take the bodies out in order to go get firewood to keep themselves warm. Well, he eventually gets paroled in exchange for some Confederate prisoners with 12 other folks, but only he and another guy make it. They're so bad off. So he goes to the hospital, and I should tell you, before he goes to Andersonville, the the train that was taking him there, uh, one of the soldiers tried to get some water, but they weren't supposed to in a stream, and so that uh, soldier got shot. And Corbett just picked up the canteen, walked in front of the guard, and just shot this guy, got the water, and gave it to him. So everybody thinks he's a god. He just, yes. (laughs) This whole life
0: is like not quitting. And then... The
2: weird parts yet to come. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. So so he goes to the hospital, you know, afterwards. And then he re-ups again. They discharged him, and he re-ups. And he goes with the 16th. Uh, New York regiment outside of Washington D.C., and that's the time that Abraham Lincoln got shot. So his troops get sent to the barn where uh, John Wilkes Booth is, is holed up, with orders not to kill Booth because they think there's this big conspiracy going on, Jefferson Davis, and they gotta find out what's going on so other people get killed. And so Corbett's there, uh, and Booth won't come out. So some federal agents decide to set fire to the hay in the barn to smoke out Booth. And Corbett says, no, I'll go in there, I'll get him. And they say, no, calm down, calm down, Uh, we'll do it this way. So Corbett uh, says that he looks through the slats of the board and sees Booth. And he claims he saw Booth pick up a rifle. So Corbett, who was supposed to be a really good shot, shoots him right through the boards in the barn and shoots him in the back of the head in the precise spot that Lincoln got shot. Booth goes down, not quite dead, he survives for a while in pain, they arrest Corbett and take him to Washington to have a court-martial. But when he gets there, Secretary of War stands and says, well, you know, you saved us a lot of money for the trial, so I declare you a patriot and a hero. Everybody cheers. They take him to Matthew Brady's uh, photography studio, uh, pictures that have circulated around the country for a while. He's very, very famous. And the $50,000 reward that was offered for the uh, capture of booth did not go to Mr. Corbett. It went to the agents who set the fire in the barn. He got his horse because he said he was very attached to his horse, and they gave him $1,600. So he took that money, tried to make a living, couldn't, was living in Camden, and decides to go to Kansas with no money. He basically goes to newspaper editors and says, I'll tell you my story story, give me some money so I can go to the next town. Finally gets to Kansas, and I mean it's nowhere Kansas. And he gets 80 acres, builds a dugout, um, shoots at people, whoever come on his property, and uh, tries to minister to the locals. He just wants to be alone because he believes he's being chased by nemesis and 22 assassins sent by southern sympathizers. So he's very paranoid, and they religious zealot. Wonderful. Great combo. Very Great. healthy. So the local minister says, you know, I feel sorry for this guy. I'm going to get him a job as an assistant doorkeeper in the Kansas legislature. So he goes down to Topeka. He's there. He's uh, listening to debates. And it's very sketchy what actually happens. Either people were uh, mocking him for his very lengthy uh, prayers or um, he thought what they were saying was blasphemous. So he either locked the chamber the legislators inside to lecture them, or he took out his revolvers and just shot the place up. Either way, they took him into custody, declared him to be insane, and sent him to the insane asylum. One day, the superintendent of the insane asylum son came by with a very fast pony, tied it up to visit his dad. Um, Corbett looked around, said, hey, here's another adventure in the offing jumped the fence, jumped on the pony and took off. People said that pony looked like it was flying. Um, 80 miles away, they found the pony with a note saying who owned it. And supposedly he boarded a train for Mexico, but nobody saw him get on. And then there's decades of stories of people saying they saw him, in Minnesota, Nevada, Mexico here, but they never heard from him again. But there was a lot of imposters who were trying to get his notoriety, and to get his pension. so there were several people who got arrested for impersonating him.
1: So like a like a Dread Pirate
2: Roberts
0: situation. Oh!
2: Yeah, yeah, pretty much like Except that. So, so the, mis- the real mystery is- totally castrated and to insane. <laughs> but the weird thing for me is why did the Boy Scouts decide that this guy-
0: Oh, yeah! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. a monument.
2: <laughs> and what's even weirder is this guy's life is so amazing How come we don't know about him? How come there's no other monument to him? Somebody who went through perfect things in his life with disadvantaged mental abilities because of his job and just bolted into the blue on a horse, flying away. So that's my weird thing.
0: That is a weird thing. That's so weird. What did the memorial look like? Was it a plaque? Was it a statue?
2: It was like an iron arch. And they used to have two revolvers crossed on the top of the arch, like a arbor arbor, uh, gate, and you would go up and take a look at the the pit. And I should tell you that I found, I I took a ride in this in a convertible 1960 MGA and got chased by several dogs as I was going here.
0: That feels like some Corbett energy there Yeah, chased like by the, dogs. The ghost the of Chloe those road.
1: southern symph- sympathizers. Well, it's worthwhile
2: for the trip because then you can go to Cawker City and see the world's largest ball of twine. I mean, this part of Kansas has a lot to offer.
0: I feel I so, like go this a, is a so go take a look. Ringing endorsement. <laughs>
2: and, and research John Mosby.
0: I'm going to research John Mosby. I am shocked that this wasn't a teeny plague, but this is a full arch... Monument
1: yes, with revolvers, I mean, which also just you know, like feel like they were leaning into the, you know, if he was shooting up the legislator.
2: Yes, somebody stole them a while ago, but you can still see the outline.
0: Oh well, that's fitting.
2: Exactly. <laughs> oh man. Well, thanks the for the man. inspiration of trying to share weird things with the world.
0: Thank you. It. We're
1: Thank very you excited. So and much. Have I mean, to I mean, tune in to see how we manage to connect
0: it at the end. <laughs> I Good mean, I feel luck. like what isn't in there for connection, <laughs> right? Because right? We've religion. we've been dread anywhere.
2: There's and, and if I had told you this story is fiction, you would have sent me to the asylum. But it's all
1: true. <laughs> My goodness.
0: that kind of story can
1: only be true.
0: Yeah, yeah. I like the Dread Pirate Roberts aspect, but like, really? <laughs> I'm him. Me too. That's. I think that's the weirdest part for me that people then wanted to pretend to be him. Oh. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. And everyone, take inspiration from that. Do you grab bags. And if you want to come and do it in the flesh, and you can watch our faces as we go from horror to <laughs> anticipation to laughter. That was, a, that was a wild ride. Thank you.
2: I saw Michelle taking all the scissors on her desk and pushing them to the side. <laughs> I can't wait to hear your, the rest of your podcast. Thank you.
1: Bye. 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 Thanks. That was,
0: that was a wild ride, Catherine. And now we're ready to (gasps) move on. Wild ride. I bet, I bet if you hung, if you hung, if you hung the man who shot, the man who shot John Wilkes or the man who shot, the man who shot Lincoln by his feet, he'd be fine. You think he has that? What's the, the, would he be able to
1: maintain integrity even upside down?
0: Yes, I think he's maintained integrity through more than being hung upside down by a whatever
1: house. integrity there was was maintained.
0: So that brings us to pop culture. I oh, I tried my best, but I can't. Um, I can't help myself. This is something Michelle and I talked about because I sent this to Michelle. So that I wouldn't use it on the podcast. And yet it is all I can think about in pop culture. (laughs) To be fair, I've had a very busy week. And I've not consumed as much pop culture as I usually do. I did watch all of WandaVision in two nights. Did you like it? No. Um. I'm going to say I I loved it. I loved some of it. I think it had a lot of potential and I liked all the television things they were doing. I just can't get very into Marvel superhero stuff. Mm-hmm. So by the time at the end when it was just like special effects flying against special effects they and had at each other. Marvel has to do that. They know. I know. They, they
1: know who butter's their bread.
0: But there were some moments of it that were great.
1: I thought it was a really smart Look at grief and trauma.
0: Yes, yes. I appreciated that. Um, I just wish it had been able, like all the good impulses of it, I wish it had been able to just do entirely that. But I think we're going to come to a point in time where any good culture we get has to be filtered through superheroes. And this is a case. <laughs> just <of> everything. That. <laughs> everything.
1: Everything. You want a documentary? Well, some superheroes are going to tell you about this history.
0: Would you like a drama? Well, after these superheroes come and fight. (laughs) Shakespearean play, well, it's all superheroes. I do in some ways believe that. And I think this is a great example of that because I, I read that some of it is very much based on like Philip K. Dick novels, Ubik. There's another one, like two Philip K. Dick novels. Philip K. Dick novels are notorious that they cannot be made into movie or television in any good way. And this was amazing. This was the best Philip K. Dick Novel reproduction into film or television I've ever seen. It was brilliant when it was doing that. Um, And then it was very Marvel superhero-y. But you, I, okay. So I'm going to say I did like WandaVision. I was disappointed at the end. What were your feelings on WandaVision?
1: I enjoyed it. I am at this, I mean, we've talked a lot about what state our brains are in from the, hitting the pandemic wall. So it, um, it was heavier than what I was probably prepared to deal with intellectually, but I appreciated how meaningful it made her. I'm trying not to give any spoilers because I, as somebody who watches things uh, way, way, way after they air, I don't appreciate our spoiler culture that's like, well, you've had 72 hours. Get with it. I'm like, well, I just watched... Veronica Mars for the first time. Like, you got to give me some space. Um, so I, I thought that it it very much, it was very human in a way that I appreciated, even as it was so fantastical. And I, I like that in my fantasy. I like it when my fantasy is grounded in something I can really recognize. And
0: yeah, okay. But that's, that could be my pop culture. It <laughs> could be done. But I'm going to very briefly, because I cannot stop thinking about it, even though I sent- this to you to make myself accountable. I am going to say that I've talked a lot about television. We know I watch bad television. We know I watch the Masked singer. The mask singer is back for a new season. Um, I sent Michelle a headline. Oh boy. Did she, which Michelle responded with, I can't understand anything that's happening here. I don't <laughs> understand these words. Well, and it is a headline from Jezebel. I'll link to the whole article. And um, basically, Michelle just said, you know, spoiler culture is bad, but I don't feel bad about spoiling this because this doesn't deserve... This is protection culture, friends. Yes, it's protection. Thank you, Michelle. So it's spoiler <laughs> culture, it's protection culture, and I'm saving us all from ourselves and the world. But this does have a spoiler slash protection from the first episode of the new season of Masked Singer. Masked Singer is a show in which celebrities, uh, maybe um sing inside of elaborate costumes and we guess who they are and so I'm just going to read the Jezebel caption and the first paragraph the Jezebel article about this is they're putting puppets in the puppets if I were asked to explain the mask singer an esoteric nightmare stuffed with D-listers and freakishly realistic snail costumes I would politely smile And say no, because as of last night, they're putting puppets in the puppets. No, an elaborate sex game did not unfold on Wednesday's episode. In a stunning reveal, the snail was none other than Kermit the Frog.
1: I'm just going to ask you listeners to pause for a minute and think if any of those words made sense to you, because I don't feel like my reaction was unreasonable.
0: I just love Michelle was like, and Michelle is someone who like me does end Texas texts with periods, which makes it always look a little extra stern, but I think good punctuation is important. <laughs> so it did look very stern. Like I don't understand any of this full stop. Done. I am going to now be extra obnoxious <laughs> and show this to you. Oh. I'm going to make Michelle watch this moment.
1: I can't. <laughs> They they look so excited for this reveal. That snail is creepy. Oh, they took off oh, a top hat. What's going
0: on? Who is it? I'm really confused. Is there a body inside there? Ah!
2: There's something in there. Oh, oh, my God. Well, of course,
1: there's something in there. That's the whole point of the show. No. 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 I, I guess those celebrity, celebrity judges are earning their keep because that would not—I would not be able to maintain that kind of excited reaction that they did. I would be like, "No,
0: this is what I did. I refuse to play with this." No, and I put my hands over my eyes, held my head in my hands, and refused to look up until the episode was over, and my husband had fully turned the television off. That was and the right reaction. Are you I'm going to just say. Are you going to watch the next episode? No. Good. But have I given up on the Masked Singer? No, because there's Masked Singer Australia. There's Masked Singer UK. And I will say the first person, not person, the first contestant kicked off of Masked Singer US was Kermit the Frog. But the first person kicked off of Masked Singer UK. Remember the first person eliminated. So arguably the worst contestant. Of mass singer UK was Mel B, Scary Spice, an actual singer and human, human being, very famous, very famous singer. So that's it. That's my pop culture. That was yeah. No, all right. I'm so sorry, everyone and Michelle. No, you're
1: protecting us. You don't watch okay. that. Don't okay. don't do that to yourselves.
0: Okay. What is your
1: pop culture? My pop culture. Is first of all, have you seen Judas and the Black Messiah?
0: No, I am watching it this weekend. I'm very excited. You I should love. be Lakeith Stanfield got nominated, oh, right? That's actually
1: that's my my pop oh. culture thing is about that the weirdness of that nomination. So um Lakeith Stanfield is one of my favorite actors,
0: like just. You've seen Sorry to Bother You, right? Yes,
1: I've seen Sorry to Bother You and he is the best character on Atlanta, um, which you have not watched. He's in Atlanta? Oh my, he's the best character. Like, I can't, I can't even, I can't even talk about it. Like, I can't, um, the ongoing saga of why isn't Catherine? Why are you not watching, watching Atlanta? Why are you watching The Masked Singer when you I could know. you could have watched an entire episode of Atlanta in that time that you spent? I hope you are
0: happy with yourself and your choices. I need to be hung up by the feet and ridden around on a helicopter. Except are, that would be more time not mammal. watching Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. All right.
1: All right. Please watch Atlanta.
0: Please. I'm going to. I'm going to. Like
1: Keith Stanfield's character in Atlanta, all of Atlanta is brilliant, but like Keith Stanfield's character in Atlanta is just, it's superb. And I've heard that he, that a lot of his character in Atlanta is his own personality, which just makes it so much better. So anyway, he is literally one of my favorite actors, just period in n- no qualifications needed. I think that he is brilliant. He is a fantastic. Full actor. stop.
0: Like the end of a text by Michelle. That
1: period. There it is. Um, but his range is just absolutely astonishing to me. Like he's able to just pull off and it's all very subtle. I don't, I'm going to just, if you're listening Academy, Keith Stanfield deserves this award and I would like for you to do the right thing. Um, So anyway, my pop culture thing is that he got nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Judas and the Black Messiah.
0: Well, do we think
1: we know why? Okay. So I've been researching this today in preparation for bringing it up on this podcast. And I don't really understand. So um, he is nominated alongside his co-star, Daniel Kaluuya, who was um, so... This is not a spoiler, I hope. So this is the Fred Hampton story, right? So for those of you who do not know, Judas and the Black Messiah um, refers to Judas, who is Lakeith Stanfield's character, Bill O'Neill, who was a man who really did infiltrate the Black Panther Party um, in the 1960s. I think this is when this is taking place. It's under uh, J. Edgar Hoover's FBI program. There was... A lot of real questionable stuff going on as far as how they monitored the Black Panthers. They had like a ton of informants. Um, and the way that they got the informants was often kind of like um, manipulating people who were kind of Caught, caught up in some some petty crimes and then they just sort of snowballed them into these positions where they, they felt like they had no options to get away. Um, and so Judas refers to Bill O'Neill as being the person who turned on people who trusted him, right, within the Black Panther movement. And Fred Hampton is the Black Messiah because he was the leader of the Black Panthers, their... Um, the Illinois chapter or the Chicago chapter I think it's the statewide Illinois chapter of the Black Panthers um and so it's about that that dynamic so I guess I could see how you could make an argument that it is a story of these two men but it is really very much more the story of Bill O'Neill right like and I I don't I I'm trying to Stanfield plays the one who Lakeith Stanfield plays yeah uh, obviously, you can't tell the story without Fred Hampton, right? Like, Fred Hampton is the catalyst for the story. Fred Hampton is the tragic figure in the story. Um, would you
0: say, and you've seen the movie, yes. would you say it is not unlike like, Jesus Christ Superstar? Have you seen Jesus Christ Superstar? I haven't. Okay, well, in <laughs> Jesus Christ Superstar, um, which is a, probably an unfair comparison to this movie, um, Judas is... The star of that. Okay. The person who plays Jesus is not the star. It's a much better singer and actor who needs to be the star that plays Judas. And that's okay. the actual star of that because the way um the musical is done is he's he's the main character. Okay. But of course yeah. it's so that's it's Jesus Christ superstars the title and
1: so in this i would say that i can point to very specific evidence that makes my reading of this supported for one there is actual footage of bill o'neill the real life bill o'neill um because he gave this interview that um aired years after all of this happened and so the frame story is literally set up with actual footage of the real life bill o'neill and there's also i mean Almost everything is through Bill O'Neill's perspective. There are a few moments where we see things that, that Bill O'Neill couldn't have been seen, but they're not necessarily things Fred Hampton would have been seen either. They're just sort of exposition in general. Um, and we see lots of times when Bill O'Neill is meeting with the FBI director that completely separate from the world of the Black Panthers, right? So it's him being pulled in and out of that world that is the catalyst of the, the action of the, of the series. So, I mean, and another piece of evidence is Lakeith Stanfield campaigned to be in the best actor category and Daniel Kaluuya campaigned to be in the supporting actor category. Mm-hmm. So it seems very clear that even the actors themselves kind of saw that delineation. Yeah. And so when the Oscar nominations were announced, a lot of people were confused, including Lakeith Stanfield himself, um... As to why both of them are included in best supporting actor Especially category. actually, They'll try very hard to not have two actors from the same movie up against each other. Right. Um, so I was trying to figure out why this is, and apparently so are a lot of other people trying to figure out why this I happened. I have a pet theory. Do you? What's I want to hear theory? if you have okay. one, though. So, well, so I was reading, this is a piece by um, from Variety, and it was written by Clayton Davis, who did uh, kind of was trying to explain this a bit. And so the Academy is not limited to what category somebody campaigns for. They can change the categories. They have, they have free reign on their ballot. So he suspects that what actually happened was that Kalua, the guy who plays Fred Hampton got nominated quite often in the lead actor category. And so that I'm, I'm trying to figure like, it's hard for me to, completely follow the argument that he's making here. Um, but he's saying that you can't be nominated in more than one category. That's against the rules. It has been against the rules since... Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's, so there's a rule that you cannot have an actor nominated twice in the same category or for the same performance in two separate categories. So, even if you were in two movies that year and you were best supporting actor in both of them, you cannot be on the ballot in both oh. categories, and if somebody wants to nominate you for the same performance in two separate categories, you can't get that either. It dates back to the 1945 Best Picture winner, Going My Way, where Barry Fitzgerald was nominated as both Best Actor and Supporting Actor, and the Academy
0: was like, "No, we can't do that." So they changed the rules. So that makes sense that so you can't be Best Actor and Supporting Actor for the same role. But I think it's unfair that you couldn't be like amazing in two movies and get best actor for both.
1: Yeah. I think, I don't think that's the same issue. I agree that that's kind of, yeah. So the rule is, is that if an actor receives enough votes in both categories to get on the ballot, that the performance that receives the larger number of votes ultimately becomes the category that they are nominated under. So they suspect that both of these men were nominated across both categories on people's ballots, but they just both got more supporting than lead. And so that's how it ended up here is the suspicion. What is your pet theory?
0: I don't know. I don't know anything about how it works. I know that um, sometimes, you know, the studio, right? It's the studio that does the like advertising for like four year consideration, right? And kind of pushes sometimes how the votes will go. And I know that the studios often do push hard so that the same, so actors from the same movie aren't in the same category. Right. And so I don't know. I, I guess my pet theory was that best actor category is decided that's just decided, right. That's going to Chadwick Boseman. How could it not? And so for anyone to have a shot, you want to kind of push them down to supporting if you can. And so like Keith Stanfield has like a really really good shot of winning but no one's going to win against Chadwick Boseman. So. so
1: but I'm also hearing that people don't think that he'll win against Daniel Kaluuya which uh,
0: um And that's a shame. Yeah, cuz I, mean, well, I mean, I mean, not like I I haven't seen the movie. I'm not saying oh don't win it. Daniel they Kaluuya,
1: both but. do a phenomenal job in the movie. Like I I'm definitely not saying like Daniel Kaluuya doesn't deserve it, but I just think I just really like Lakeith Stanfield and I think that this performance was
0: deserves to be in that they shouldn't be against each
1: other and you'll have to after you watch it this weekend you'll have to text me because we have to talk about it because I can't stop thinking about it and I mean it is a it is a heavy movie but I just can't and there's one line in particular and I'll have to see if it sticks with you too That is just really yeah it's a very good movie I highly recommend it um it's a very heavy movie so you should I'll get ready be prepared I mean, that feels like a deserved honor. Yeah. Although I've heard that, um, I hope I don't mispronounce his last name, Steven Yoon. Oh, yeah,
0: because he's nominated. And he's- I've
1: heard that that, perf- I have not seen that movie yet either, but I've heard that that performance is really, really good.
0: Saw on Instagram this morning, which is why Lakeith Stanfield was on my mind. Boots Riley put on Instagram, he's like, I'm late, but I'm really happy for these two dudes that he had a shot from sorry to bother you that had both actors it's like you Stanfield and Stephen young were both in that
1: movie oh yeah yeah so they were
0: disgusting. i love i love that movie
1: it's such a good movie yeah now that movie and that's a movie that like i've seen it probably three or four times now and it gets better every single time i watch it like it. Just i showed is- you
0: i showed you i told you how i first how i watched that yeah movie the at that time the, um. At all oh, oh, For the listeners, because Michelle knows now For the listeners, my, my university I teach at um, one, of the longest, one of the longest One of the largest Marxist communist clubs In the US is in Colorado Springs And they invited Boots Riley to give a talk And have a screening of Sorry to Bother You And he came And it was so Awesome was it the Golden Globes and the Hollywood Foreign Press? Did you hear about that controversy? No, no what happened? That um, the the Hollywood Foreign Press, for over, I think they said 20 years, has not had a single Black member. For how long? For over 20 years, and it might be longer. Um, Not a single Black member, and so there was a big... This happened mainly because of Emily in Paris, when that, like... Got nominations and then won things, and even the people who created it were like, "This should not have gotten nominated." And shows like I made a story, you got nothing, and that people started looking into the actual structures of how are nominations happening, and it turned out that the um, the studio behind Emily in Paris flew all of the voting members of the Hollywood foreign press out to Paris and paid for an expensive hotel for them. And that really helped probably, yeah. definitely. And um, and then they looked into it more and yeah, there's no there are no black members of the Hollywood foreign press. And so some, some publicists, some really heavy hitting publicists wrote a letter in protest and said, you don't have any access to any of our clients if you don't fix this immediately. So maybe hopefully who knows but i think yeah we should look at look at the nominations and how they're being decided so research research Uh oh uh oh <laughs> i'm raising my eyebrows at michelle so did you did you raise the dead did i raise the dead um well, Ringo Starr is still alive, I'm happy to report, but I'm not unconvinced that's not because we chanted boob, goob, goochoo, Ringo Starr. I am going to say that I am ending my snowman trilogy here. I don't know if it's ended, but I'll let you I'll <laughs> let you believe that for now. Go ahead. That's really kind of you, Michelle, <laughs> to let me have that. <laughs> um, so I searched and I searched and I searched and I searched for answers. And I got really frustrated, right? goal for this episode was to look up resurrection histories of snowmen. Because we are searching, if you'll, like, previously on agreement with Michelle and Catherine, I was tracking down this image of a snowman that said, goob, goob, goochoo. That's so specific, as we talked about, how is there not a connection to the I am the Eggman, I'm the walrus song by the Beatles? We couldn't find one. So I said... My argument is that this is some ancient resurrection spell John Lennon did an acid trip and got a hold of through time and space. So I have to prove that now. And the easiest way to prove that is by studying the history of snowman resurrections. You would the think the easiest snowman,
1: way to prove it is to bring something back from the dead with your chanting,
0: but fine. For academics, Michelle, I have to, I have to study <laughs> before action. Um, I mean, to be fair. There was a very, the biggest, right? We started this because it snowed here in Colorado and I built a snowman. Every time we've recorded since, it has snowed and we had the biggest snow. We had like I feet of snow. feel
1: like the universe is giving you an opportunity here and you're
0: wasting not it. it. Wasting it because I didn't even have to build my own snowman this time. I was walking home from the gallery I work at sometimes and someone had built a snowman as big as their house. It was as big as their house. What an opportunity to try I this don't, out. Let's maybe start with smaller snowmen because I think like 30 seconds ago you were chiding me for not trying this out. Now I want to try it out. Now it's no, oh 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 on, on the snowman the size of a house. I don't know. It's warm here. It, it won't make it all the way to, to me. Go ahead. You're safe. You're <laughs> safe. It'll only terrorize up and down. If you're in if you're in college spring, watch out. So, um, no, all this to say, I have not actually tried the spell out. That will be my weird thing. If it works, you'll hear it here first.
1: I'm pretty sure we'll hear it from (laughs) the news
0: first. You'll
1: hear it. You'll know. You'll be like, oh, there's a giant snowman that's come to life in Colorado Springs.
0: All right, Catherine. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, you won't hear it here first, but you'll know why (laughs) we're seeing it on the news. So, (laughs) um... So we're looking for what Goo goo Gojoob means. I was surprised to learn. I thought that, you know, Frosty the Snowman. Is That's that the snowman? top head
1: on him to bring him to life, right? Like, isn't I'm that the, the lore?
0: Yeah. Don't you think it would be really prevalent? That was written around 1950, um, performed by Gene Autry, who also did Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And that song was only done trying to seek the um, popularity and fame and success of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer with another kind of wintry song. Other than that, I didn't find, there's like a, there's a children's story here or there, but this isn't like a, a tried and true fairy tale where snowmen come to life. You this can't isn't like, like trace a it back through the, yeah. Thing. There are abominable snowmen, which I did a lot of research on, decided that's a dead end. That's more of a monster, Mm -hmm. not even made of snow. It's more like a Yeti or a Bigfoot. We don't care. We don't care about them. That there is a man named Bob Eckstein, who was a cartoonist for The New Yorker. I am not alone in this snowman obsession. Bob Eckstein quit his career as a political cartoonist to dedicate his life solely to studying snowmen. In fact, his biography says... I quit and I am now a historian of snowmen full time. This is what my life calling is. So I feel a little reassured as I go down this um, rabbit hole as it draws me in that I'm not the first. Um, Bob Eckstein wrote a book called The History of the Snowman and got obsessed with them after hearing about the miracle of 1511, just like me. So I'm gonna kind of leave it. I'm not leaving it there yet, but I will say if you wanna know more about snowmen, that book is very, very extensive and very good. And um, I did learn, and I have to say this as a disclaimer, that I am very sorry about that I missed. And I think I mentioned this really, really early on, maybe our first podcast when I was talking about bubonic plague, that I mentioned it to you, and I told you to go research it yourself. I didn't want to talk about it. It was too heavy. That um, during certain plagues, especially in the in France they blamed it they scapegoated certain populations a lot of times they blamed the plague on Jewish people and said they were poisoning well water and burned them it was horrific and there are you look at medieval manuscripts and oftentimes especially in the 14th century they're horrifically anti-semitic and there's this sickness, there's this plague, and they find a scapegoat, which again, I'm gonna say scapegoating entire populations of people for illnesses is certainly happening right now. And it's a problem. Why does this have to do with snowmen, Catherine? The very, this is not my goob, goob, goob image, but the very, very first image when I said, hey, how old do we think snowmen are? Snowmans. Snowmen are, we know because we have this medieval manuscript image, that's an anti-Semitic image. I learned from Bob Eckstein. Like these other medieval manuscripts where they're blaming plague on Jewish people, the very first image of a snowman we have is from one of these anti-Semitic manuscripts. And we know that because um, it's a snowman, and when you look at it, I think I laughed and said, oh, he looks sad. It's a sad, weird snowman. The snowman's in front of a fire and they're burning the snowman. And I didn't know this. Um, my medieval symbolism isn't up to date. He's wearing a, a hat, a kind of hat, it's it's not a yarmulke. Um, it's a hat that at the time in 14th century France was associated with Jewish people. So they put a little hat on this snowman and they're burning him as an effigy of someone who's Jewish. And what does this have to do with this? The passage of the medieval manuscript is about the crucifixion of Christ. The first snowman we can find in a written context is illustrating the crucifixion of Christ. So I was gonna like laugh about this and be like, well, Christ was resurrected, so it's a resurrection spell, but then I learned it was anti-Semitic and I just wanted to like have a disclaimer and say, Ugh. um So the very first snowman is an anti-Semitic snowman. So I'm bringing the conversation down again. That has nothing to do with jube snowman, which is from the Miracle of 1511. And so my research ends, the trilogy ends here. Michelle is already saying, no, it doesn't, but I'm going to try to make it end. Um, I learned this is as close as I can get. I didn't get anywhere with Snowman Resurrection. I didn't get anywhere with the oldest snowmen. But I did learn this fun snowman fact about Switzerland and snowmen, which is in Zurich for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. There's a festival called the Festival of Salutin, which is the Festival of Six Bells. And... Um, hundreds of years ago, there was a city ordinance that regulated the length of the working day. And this is again around the medieval era. And during the winter, the workday in all workshops was to last as as long as there was daylight. But during the summer, following the vernal equinox, that was longer. So they didn't want to work until the sun went down. And so the law proclaimed that the work must cease when the church bells tolled at six o'clock. So to celebrate that change was the festival of six bells changing to summer working hours. And so um, to mark the beginning of the season, people had a festival. How would you celebrate that festival? To celebrate the vernal equinox? There's a lot of things you could do. Um, What they do in Switzerland, in Zurich, is the Berg. Berg? It's a, called a Berg, and it's B-O-O-G. The Berg is a snowman stuffed with straw, cotton, and dynamite. And on the third Monday in April, which is this equinox, after being paraded through town, the Berg is set aflame, and the faster its head explodes, the better the warm weather to come. And its backwards is goob. Goob, right? It's a backwards goob. According to tradition, the quicker the boog explodes, the better summer. This is like a snowman meets wicker man meets groundhog day thing. Right, groundhog? If it sees its shadow, mm-hmm. it's more yeah, winter. Yeah, yeah. This is the the faster the head explodes, the better weather we will get sooner. Ran it through Google Translate, right? What does berg mean? If it's goob backwards, berg from Swedish is berg in English. That's not helpful. It doesn't translate. Not it's untranslatable. But it made me laugh because here's, I didn't know... That Google Translate, even if it's an untranslatable word, will change the accent and pronunciation? And I don't know about you, but this tickled me. This tickled me so much. So here it is in Swedish. Berg. One more time. Berg. Berg. But as you know, I've been sitting here going, berg. So it's berg. And then the English. Berg. <laughs> boog. Boog. I'm American and I say boog. Boog. <laughs> <Bug. laughs> goob, goob, um, goop. It's it's goob backwards. And what did we do? What did we do with the Beatles albums? We played them backwards. Play them backwards. Okay. This feels important.
1: It feels important. I feel like someone somewhere, maybe years from now. listen to this podcast and have the answers for us that by putting this out there we're going to eventually get to the answers that I need on why that snowman
0: we need this I'm missing something I can't just go out and chant in front of my snowman. Yeah it can't be that easy. I mean there was like those
1: spirally sun things in the corner that seemed important. Fireworks fireworks in the head
0: (gasps) they were fireworks because they stuff his head with dynamite. Okay, I need some dynamite. And then I need the words. I'm going to go to that giant snowman. Watch out. Watch out, people, three blocks down the road. You, from me. you know what is
1: going to destroy this for you is your American accent. Because obviously you're going to be out there going boog when you're supposed to say that thing that I can't say.
0: Boog. 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 <laughs> Not, but <hey>. I'm going <laughs> to practice. Oh right. yeah. how do you say it
1: backwards
0: oh no okay <laughs> i'm gonna oh no i have a lot of work to do <laughs> this is gotta get my dynamite you can see why that guy quit his job i mean this is obviously a full-time endeavor I, also, I felt it was worth it because i do think the fun fact that my research dug up that there is a groundhog day-esque festival where we explode a snowman's head we never would have gotten there and in 2006 Thieves smashed a window where they were housing the Boer egg and they stole him. They left a chocolate Easter bunny and a hammer and sickle emblem in the place where they stole the Boer egg from. And it was an extremist group called Retaking the Streets on May Day. They sent a letter to this media, being responsibility for the theft, saying that this tall snowman had, quote, had enough of putting its head on the line for capitalists. So it became well, a little action. But the same person has been had at that point been making the boar egg for over 50 years. And unbeknownst to the thieves, he had made two backup boar eggs. So moves. you have to wonder, does he always make backup ones? Like, is he always just
1: prepared for, like, maybe someone will come and steal them? I appreciate your dedication to this topic because you're getting us the answers that no one
0: else will the answers no one else wants they're getting want them. them they just don't know they want them yet they'll regret it when i have my snowman army <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right um my research thing I don't, I don't quite know where this is gonna go it could be really short could be a rambling mess i as you know katherine am a rhetoric scholar. I studied rhetoric for many years, wrote a dissertation on the teaching of writing. I have taught writing for many, many, many years. I'm like trying to think of when I officially started teaching writing. Probably 2005 was when I first started working in like writing centers. So yeah, like officially, officially. Yeah. Like a long time. Like I've been officially like a writing instructor for a long time. And I'm going to tell you, almost half your life. Almost half my life. Half yeah, basically life. half my life. Um that I do not understand the modes of writing, which is theoretically a foundational element of my entire field of expertise. And so that's what I'm going to make my research thing be about. So if you look up what are the modes of writing. So if you're a writing instructor, you're supposed to teach your learners, whatever age they are, whether they're young children or adults, writers, whatever, you are supposed to teach them how to write in different ways, right? For different rhetorical situations, for different audiences, for different purposes. And yeah. these are often shorthanded as the modes of writing that you were supposed to teach people, right? That and makes- so by making this list of modes, theoretically, again, you then have like, oh, I can go through and check. I taught them how to do this, check I taught them how to do this and know that you have accomplished what there is to accomplish as a writing instructor. So there are some differences and different lists. Some things add one term or not another, but in general, these are the agreed upon modes of writing. There is the narrative mode, the descriptive mode, the informative or expository mode, the persuasive or argumentative mode and the reflective mode. See that face you're making? I don't know if I ever actually knew that.
0: Because it doesn't make any sense. I, so, I listen to you say them. I'm like, okay, this, I like lists, I like bullet points, I'm ready. I don't teach like writing rhetoric, but I am responsible for teaching students how to write. And I don't know. I don't the, know. This list doesn't do us any I feel good. like you just told me about a puppet and a puppet. It, I, I think it's a puppet and a puppet. All right.
1: So, like, I want there. so the reason that I was looking these up, because look, I, there are not that many things that I'm very good at in this world, which is not putting myself oh. down. I'm okay at plenty of things, but there are not that many things that I am great at, but I am a really good writing teacher
0: like we talked about this this is like your queen's gambit like when you lay in bed and can vision things in your head it's writing i i
1: I have had so many people who have been like i hate writing i can't get any words on the page and after a couple months, they're like, oh my gosh, like, look at all these things I've written. I'm so excited. Like, I can get people excited about it. I'm very proud of my work as a writing instructor, and I'm very proud of the work that my students produce. I, helping people figure out how to say things in meaningful ways is like, I feel like that's just the thing I was put here to do. I do it yeah, well. That's I'm, where it just, it just, it all clicks. I, I love doing it. So, not knowing the modes of writing, I'm telling you here in public because I feel no shame in it because I know
0: (laughs) (laughs) you are so confident that this is what you are here (laughs) to do and know. And it is in your being. You have no shame. I have
1: no shame in not understanding the foundational elements of my field because this doesn't like, I'm going to, I'm going to say that list again, narrative, Narrative. narrative,
0: Which is That's, story, story, right? Like I, I'm trying. Okay, let me let me say them to me, and I'm going to try. Like narrative would be, you're conveying a story. A, narrative. a story. This yeah. happened, and then this happened, and blah blah, blah blah blah, blah. Once
1: upon a time. Yes.
0: Okay. Narrative. Descriptive. Um. That would be like. Isn't that part of a narrative though? Like what I am right. Okay. So there was maybe, a green frog in a stale. Maybe you
1: need to do descriptive writing if you're like um reporting on a science experiment and you need to describe like the results of like what happened to your control. Or maybe if you're like right so to me. Being able to do descriptive writing is important, but within a piece of another writing, right? It's not a
0: mode unto
1: itself. Right, right. Narrative. Telling a story. Descriptive. Describing. Describing something. Expository slash informative, which I would
0: think is like
1: like a news report, right? Like a
0: documentary kind of news. Yes.
1: Um. Not, not. not overtly opinionated I mean because you and I know you can't report on anything without having some lens through which you're reporting and so your biases and opinions are always represented in some way which is another reason that I think that these modes of writing are bullshit but um
0: so so okay
1: so
2: narrative
0: more than like descriptive being its own thing
1: narrative, descriptive, expository, informative, persuasive, argumentative, which again, uh, there's this whole, like, there's a really good writing book called Everything's an Argument that is basically like, I like that. Yeah. Any kind of writing you're doing is argumentative writing, because if you don't have something to say, you wouldn't be writing, right? Like you're, you're always trying to get somebody else to see your point of view. If you manage to take the time to express yourself in some way, right? So that like, it's always persuasive because if you're writing informatively, you're trying to persuade somebody to care about the thing that you're writing about. If you're telling a story, you're trying to persuade somebody to listen to the story. Like there's no such thing as non-persuasive writing, right? Like you're always, you always have a stake in it or you wouldn't have spent the time to write it down. Right. Um, And when I say write it down, I don't always just mean written. I mean like this podcast is a rhetoric, right? Like this, this, uh, a, painting that you make, anything where you are expressing an idea. Um, so to kind of say, well, but for the sake of these sorts of assignments, we mean like, you know, take a stance on gun control and write a paper about which side you're on, that kind of argumentative where you where you take up a position in something, in some argument where kind of um, lines have already been drawn and you're supposed to show which side you're on, right? Right. And then um, some lists also include reflective, which I think is probably like using writing to to look at your own personal process or look at your own, um, like, often we'll do like reflective writing in my classes when it's like, hey, how did you revise this paper? And what choices did you make? And which advice did you choose not to use? And why did you, you know, like where you're having to reflect on your own process. Um, We also call like, I think some assignments, we'll call them like reading reflections because you're supposed yeah, to like reflect makes, on how hope. you experienced something, yeah. right? Like as you were reading this, where was your attention most drawn? Where were you most confused? Where, you know, like it's kind of like a positioning yourself as a, as your personal experience and, and putting that personal experience forward, right? Yeah. So none of those things in my mind are mutually exclusive to one another, which no. if you're going to have a list of different things that you're supposed to do, they need to be mutually exclusive to one. like, I could definitely write an assignment that does all of those things simultaneously, right? Like, and so I've just always just
0: ignored them. <laughs> is what I've realized. Like, um, <laughs> Oh, this is really hitting home in a fun, fascinating way i always have to teach um not have to in fact i get to in fact i fought to put it on the books as its own class because it wasn't where i teach um a theories and methods of art history class Where are not unlike that you say here are the seven theories and methods of all art history and when i start teaching them to students it is wild because I realize none of these make sense. None of them stand alone on their own. And I don't use any of them. If anything, I use all of them. And really, I don't use any of them. And really, I've just made my own up. And so the reason, the reason that I was even looking these up, because again,
1: I am not questioning my own ability to write assignments or teach people how to write. I feel like I do all of half these. half your life teaching people to write and not question this. What's happening,
0: Michelle? Why are we talking? What so came?
1: the reason we're talking about this is because I'm trying to put together a presentation to teach other homeschooling parents how to teach writing.
0: And so I want Have to give. Have you ever had to teach people how to teach before?
1: Um, in some ways, yes, because I've done like workshops for um, tutors who are going to go and do writing tutoring. And I feel like I've done a pretty good job with that because it was all about the, like the relationship you needed to build with the writer. And most of, most of the information that I give parents, I mean, like, honestly, I think that's like at least 80% of the thing is that you have to create a space in which writers trust you as somebody you who's going to give them feedback. Good
0: at teaching how to be. A yes. Teacher, yes. Less how to, what to teach, how exactly. to. Exactly. Yeah. And
1: so it's really hard to tell somebody, like, oh, this is how you write a good assignment. Because I'm like, I don't know. You just, you like, you just do it. You just feel it you and you do it. it. Like, exactly. I think I brought this up here. So, you know, I'm in this weird world where I see all of this. Like, I feel like I'm on the precipice of this thing that is going to take over. For real, um, because I'm seeing all this online teaching, right? And right now, especially with the pandemic, there's been an influx of people who are getting onto these platforms, and it's become like this MLM. Like, how much money can you make, and who can you recruit? And it makes n- not my platform, because right? I, I no, your
0: platform is good because it's yours. I created
1: my own platform because those platforms and that discussion of teaching was making me physically ill. Like when it was like, well, how many, how many students can we get? How much money can I make? And I'm like, that's not like, I mean, yes, we have to make money to pay our bills, but like teaching should not be about like how many check marks can you get in your, It it really made me upset, and so um, I wanted to build something where that wasn't how we thought about teaching, right? Like, I really, I really, really care about the relationship that I'm building with my learners. But I also just know that, like, I mean, I teach writing, and that requires giving feedback. I give video feedback on every single rough draft, and then written feedback on every single final draft. So, like at my max, I can teach like 50 students a semester. And that's really kind of stretching it because, you know, I also have kids to raise and homeschool themselves and all of that. And so like, I really want to help parents homeschooling families know how to like create good writing assignments themselves. And like, to be able to, um, but we've talked about here, like a lot of people are stealing people's curriculum so that they can teach these online classes and uh, people are super, super protective of it. And I'm not saying that I'm not like, I don't want to just, I don't want people just stealing my stuff, but a lot of times I look at it and I'm like, well, <laughs> how could do What even are you going to do with it? it? Like you can't, yeah, you don't yeah. know what that is. <laughs> like,
0: you going to take my PowerPoints?
1: That's not going to get you very far. Like-
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I'll have students sometimes who are shocked that I'm like, yeah, all the slides are going to be up. I, I give you the slides. It's not a problem. And they're like, really? And it's because it's like, what are you going to do with my slides? They're just images. Right. I don't even caption them. You should be writing. <laughs> it's like, no. can't do anything. Well, and I mean, like, the-
1: you could literally take all of my course material but if you don't know how to give meaningful feedback and talk about that work you're it's not the class I mean like you can't take yeah. my class because my class is in me right it's like me just, it's yes. me I am part of that and um but I really really do want to be able to help families be able to create assignments that are meaningful and interesting. And uh, people are looking for that. And I, and so like, I do want to figure out how to translate something. And so that's why I was looking at the modes of writing. I'm like, well, we'll start with that. We'll start with the modes of writing. And I pulled them up and I was like, I was like, what the fuck is this? No, we can't start with this. And the floors are rotten. (laughs) The floors are rotten. Exactly. And so now I'm trying to like, I'm like, do I create my own? So... What I currently have is like like a three way Venn diagram of like these are the different purposes you should make sure your kids should write for. These are some of the lenses, and I'm in my mind I want them to be like where you could rotate them and like yes. whatever gets in the middle, like so it's like purpose, um, approach, and like skill you want to build. And so yes. if, if you if you pull if you pull the wheel for like well I want to entertain. And I want to tell a story, but the thing I really need to work on is organization. I could be like this is
0: how you write a prompt that does those things. Um but Oh my gosh. <laughs> Look at the beautiful hardwood. We have uncovered under this yucky Rotten floor. linoleum. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: like I kind of feel like if I bring that to people, they're going to be like, where's the list of the modes of writing? Because this, this sounds really I know, hard. How far
0: can you go gang? <laughs> those are no good? <laughs> um, how? Who created the modes of writing? How long have they been around? Oh, I think that they came. I mean, they,
1: almost certainly they came in with the, um, the prescriptivist, you know, this is how you teach writing to these kids who cannot write. It's, you know, any t- almost all of our writing conventions that we consider standard came in when we started to democratize education and let more people in because when we were only educating the elite, we didn't feel the need to police their language in this way. And so
0: oh, it, was, <laughs> surprise. it was
1: only once we started saying like, oh, yeah, yeah. So um, I don't, I'll have to look to see when they like specifically started calling them the modes of writing, but
0: I am willing to bet. Oh, I'm sure. Quite a bit that they can. As came- sure as a cat is on a ship in a cage, <laughs> I am sure that is linked. Um, you have to do this though. You have to make this a new thing. It's so much better. And yeah. I feel like it's like how you and I have had discussions about both of us have trouble with math. Um, not like we can't do math, but no, we can't do math.
1: One of us can't do math.
0: That's I can't right. do I math. us. Do- oh, okay. well, no,
1: that's not fair. I, I, I did, I did very well. And you did too. We both, we, we were on like the mathletes team. I took calculus in high school and everybody would come to my house to study for the test because I was really, really good at memorizing. Like, this is how we do the thing. But then like, Two weeks later, I was like, I don't know. Like, I memorized the test is over.
0: Oh, and then that. you'd forget. My my daughter who
1: is being homeschooled, we really struggled with math because for one thing, I had no idea how to teach math. Because if if writing is the thing that I was born to do and teach, <laughs> math is the thing I was not born to do and teach. Like, <laughs> I, I just like I I very much for every every time that I'm willing to just like whatever they're telling me to do, I'll throw that out the window. I'll do what I want. I'll feel this out. With math, I was like, please give me a book that tells me what she needs to do on each day so that I don't screw this up. Like I had zero confidence in my ability to translate it in the same way. And so um, she's working with a tutor who very much approaches math the way that I approach writing, which is like, uh, it's called it's called Cognitively Guided Instruction, CGI math. And there's this whole, like, you look it up. There's this whole thing about it. And they basically say like, you know, human beings have an innate numeracy. The same way we have like an innate literacy. Like we will tap into it if given the opportunity in the space to like find our own methods for things. And so, it, but she has such a hard time because she's like, parents want a curriculum, right? Like they want mm. you to say like, here, here are the steps you go through. This, these are the algorithms you teach. Cause that's what we call math is almost entirely just memorizing algorithms, right? Like we, we learn all the shortcuts without learning where we were trying to go. Right. Like, it's like you learn shortcuts without learning destinations. And so she's like, I have, I really struggle to get most parents on board. And I'm like, not me because I tried the other way. And it was, it was, terror. I was like, whatever you want to like, just you, ha- I trust you. You have free reign. Do the math thing with her. Um, and so. Wonderful. <laughs> but, but she says that like a lot of people, um, because it was a lot like this, like, cause she initially gave me a book and I was reading it and I was like, but like, where are the problems? And she's like, there aren't problems. You have to just explore it together. And I'm like, I can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) But where where are are the math problems? (laughs) And so, like, they do, they just literally just talk about like math concepts in context and like talk through all of these things. And, you know, my daughter will have her whiteboard out and be drawing out. And so she comes up with all, all of these ways to like multiply and divide and think of fractions. And, And I've just – I've really, really seen her confidence around math skyrocket because she understands – and before, she just constantly felt like, well, I got it wrong. I got it wrong because I didn't do it the way they wanted me to. I got it wrong. And I remember feeling like that in geometry when we had to do proofs because my proofs never, ever, 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 ever looked like the proof that was like the this is how you do it proof. And I remember, like, because I was a – I've I've grown out of caring of what most people think most of the time. But as a high schooler, especially I was taking geometry in like my freshman year I deeply cared that, like, the teacher thought I was doing a good job. And so every single time he put up the like, this is what your proof should look like. I, every time I was like, and so he just got to point, was like, yes, Michelle, whatever weird thing you did is also
2: fine, oh, right? Like, ooh, and I,
0: but I don't it think it hurts that <laughs> I don't oh. think he meant it in a like. Yeah, but we were definitely <laughs> the weird kids yeah. at yeah. that age. So to even be like, you're fine, you weirdo. <laughs>
1: To, to have, like, a, a math instruction that validates, like, oh, there's different ways to get here. Um, it makes a lot of sense to me intuitively, but I feel like I missed the chance for that yeah. to be how I have a relationship with math. But that's
0: such an amazing concept where you can just – it's something to be understood, yeah. which is – yeah, I never – you just get right into times tables and that's it. Oh, I have –
1: severe anxiety when people talk about like the mad minutes. Um ah, no, no. Like I was in, I think it was, it's either third or fourth grade where they would make you do the mad minutes where it was the entire times table. One minute, you had one minute to do them all. And I could not do it. And I was a straight A student, like, and they had told us, which uh, the more I think about this, like what the fuck were you doing to kids that we could not pass whatever grade it was, third grade or fourth grade until we could do all of our mad minutes. minutes. And I was, I would go home and sob because I'm not going to get to go to the next grade because I can't do sixes. And I just like, I literally could not do, I could not do it in a minute because I mean, and now I realize like, Oh, they just wanted me to memorize them in order.
0: But I wanted to understand. Well, what is six? You were times six? I was gonna say you were intrinsically wanting to know why. Why does six times six equals thirty-six? Why? Did they make you listen to the cassettes Were the songs for them? Probably
1: I, I in fact, most of it is very fuzzy. And like I'm not trying to be like, I truly think it is trauma. Like I I truly think- You're not I, trying to
0: diminish <laughs> trauma, but there is a fuzzy haze of protection around that.
1: Yes. Like, cause I, I mean, I would literally go home and cry for, cry myself to sleep because I, I truly thought I was not going to get to pass third grade because I couldn't do my mad minutes. Like I truly thought that like my academic life was going to end in third grade because of mad minutes. I'm so sorry. It's all that to say that I think that we, when we try to simplify- these things for curricular, curricular clarity that we're taking out the actual heart of it, right? Like I the don't think you can- a massive disservice. And I know that we're, I don't even know how long this has been going on, but I, I know I'm rambling at this point. Oh,
0: but we, this is, <laughs> you're going to give us some teaching. You're going to get a lot of talk. Yeah. Yeah. Once I, once I come up with the teaching,
1: like, and I literally, like my notes for this are literally just research thing, modes of writing. That's all I wrote. <laughs> tutored a lot of people, right? I've tutored a lot of people in writing. Um, and that means that I have often been trying to help somebody meet somebody else's assignment standards, right? Because like they come in with their assignment and
0: mm, yeah. they'll come in
1: with, and and so one thing that has always um, irked me as a teacher is people don't like rubrics. And I really like rubrics because I think that they give me as the evaluator and giving feedback that they give me a place to focus. And they also help students see especially when like I have students who are perfectionist and who think because I marked you know a couple of sentence fragments that their paper's bad and if I have a whole rubric I can be like look you did great in everything except for this one teeny tiny thing which means your paper was great right like it helps me really like provide balanced yep. feedback but then I saw some of these rubrics that my tutoring students were coming in with and I was like oh well no wonder you all hate rubrics like there would be ones that were like make sure you include at least three sentences that start with a subordinate conjunction and at least four sentences that are combined with coordinating conjunctions. And like, I mean, it's like a mad
0: minute for writing. It
1: it, it is exactly like a mad minute. I would
0: hate writing if I had to do that.
1: It was so miserable. Like I, and I had this student who was so clearly such a good student who really cared about like meeting all of the requirements. And they had this beautiful paper and we had to just mangle it. Terrible. And the worst part is, is I don't know this for sure. But I feel like that teacher didn't write that rubric or assignment. They got it out of some mass. Bringing us back
0: to your point about people taking other people's things and not being able to embody them in a good way. Well, and I think in this case, like they were embodying it exactly
1: the way it had intended to be. It's just if you try to write a guide for like, how do you teach writing and break it down into little steps? What else are you going to end up with with that? So I really want to create something that, breaks out of that like I, the modes of writing w- are not where i will start what are you I, I gonna guess. call
0: your venn diagram i don't know of, i don't know i feel like something with like Jeff wheels Pop. of fun oh, the wheels no. of <laughs> wheel of writing
1: <laughs> so yeah it's yeah that's
0: my that's my research thing modes of writing and creating a better way yes Okay. I feel like I really <laughs> went on forever. I'm sorry. Recap. Recap. We had four weird things. We had um, the board game Isle of Cats with some disturbing slavery imagery. Disturbing overtones to that, which they should have caught. And we, we had upside down black rhinos. Opposite of black rhinos. Okay, and then we had our third weird thing, which was a grab bag, which was the man who shot the man who shot Lincoln. Um, moving on to pop culture, we had um, puppets LaKeith. and puppets, puppets and puppets, disappointing mask singer. Um, Lakeith
1: Stanfield's odd placement in the Oscar nominations.
0: And for research, we had the. Third part of the snowman trilogy, including the boog festival. Boog, Berg. Berg. Oh. Boog. We discovered that that is potentially the not backwards goob. And then we talked about modes of writing. We agreed a lot about teaching yep. and math. Lots of angry. Okay. Oh, goodness. Goodness gracious.
1: What have we done to ourselves? All right. We've had. this is a heavy like a lot of these are light on the surface like look at this fun thing and then it's like oh gosh it's so dark I mean like especially like the the cat slavery game like it's literally supposed to be this very fun lighthearted game and then it has this deep disturbing overtones and you know like the thought of rhinos being upside down is kind of fun but the reason we're transporting them around is because we almost made them all go extinct. And also it's kind of disturbing the way that we're continuing to experiment on these animals and control their
0: existence. Yeah. No, right. Because it's great that the numbers are coming back up, but even even how that is happening, I don't know what I'm trying to say here to be like, what kind of life are they living if it's a hung upside down lie? I don't know. Um so <laughs> and the Puppets and Puppets
1: was definitely supposed to be lighthearted, but it deeply disturbs me to the depths of my soul. So there's that. It's so disturbing. For what's supposed to be a very lighthearted festival, but it's got this darker, and then you know, the one that was kidnapped was certainly a darker meaning. Um the, yeah, the anti Semitic snowball? The man who shot, the man who shot Lincoln. I mean, if you just stumbled upon that monument in Kansas, you'd be like, oh, this is a cool thing the Boy Scouts put oh, up. Did you shot
0: John Wilkes Booth, No. That was a whole, and he was in a pit. And that draws to mind imagery of Kermit the Frog in the snail. Yeah. If you, if you watch the clip when Kermit the Frog pokes his head up from the snail, it does. it's not unlike... It's not unlike that man coming up from his pit. Well, and the modes of writing
1: seems like a simple enough, like, oh, this is how – these are the things you teach in writing. But if you look past the surface at all, you're like, what even is – no, this is not how you teach writing.
0: So I feel like – I don't know so if – like, kind it, of dark, dark side underneath. Yeah, a dark fits, underbelly. Fits a dark underbelly. So something that seems fun, but inevitably will – show um a dark side of humanity yeah that that works for my weird thing it works for robert's weird grab bag thing it It works works for my weird thing which literally has a dark underbelly i mean because we know because we're hanging it from a helicopter then in terms of moving the pop culture it definitely works for puppets and puppets the and but does but i guess well well it's exactly what we said right we're like Oh well, there's probably an explanation for why they're put in these categories. It's probably just about the votes. And then I said, but we have to look at who's even voting. Yeah,
1: yeah. That like even just
0: undeserved, even just
1: this fun like oh, let's just give awards to people who are deserving. There's this huge, you know, racist and sexist and classist underbelly of controlling Hollywood and controlling what narratives we get. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so it's all about. Which superficial is then,
0: fun darkness below that's that's the theme which is you might be having fun you might think you're having fun but no there's a darkness to it no this can't be <laughs> I, your fortune cookie is you might think you're having fun but no but there is a darkness <laughs> dot 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 <laughs> Um, I'm just—I always like to play test it. I like to put on my imagination hat and imagine you just opened. That fortune I do, I do with everyone. We do. I I pretend. Okay, got my food. Crack it open. You may think you're having fun, but no. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I would say to that fortune cookie? I don't think I'm having fun. <laughs> I haven't been having fun. What fun fortune
1: cooking. (laughs) And if you happen to find some somewhere, we're going to take
0: it from you. Yep. I think that's fair. I think that works. Okay. I've had quite a bit of fun. I'm not saying I've had no fun. This is fun. This is fun. This is very fun. Um, I've had plenty of fun in my life. (laughs) I'm going to go yell at some snowmen in somebody's yard. Watch out. Get my dynamite. I'm out of here. (laughs) See me on the news next week, folks. (laughs) Either because that snowman's come to life or I've exploded that snowman. Well, and we have a delay. So you might see her on the news before you know what's going on. That's why I said next week, (laughs) not next episode. (laughs) (laughs) I know my timing. I know what I'm doing. (laughs) I'm going to have my own sex saluting festival but it is in april so maybe i'll wait yeah time is coming it's less than a month away it's like april 5th i can hang out i can wait okay okay bye see ya probably